Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oh, yes, indeed, and good afternoon. Craig here to say, hope you're having a good week so far here at the uh, Tuesday, June 20th edition of Lifeline. And uh, my, my, much to talk about on today's program. So um, without any further ado, we're just going to dive right in, as they say. Did you happen to catch the 60-minute story a couple of weeks ago? If you didn't, I'm going to give you a little bit of a backgrounder, and um, then we're going to invite a special guest to join us to give us a little deeper insight. But imagine for a moment, if, say, your church had been uniquely blessed by a fairly wealthy and generous congregation and had, over a period of time, through tithes and offerings, brought a pretty hefty sum into the storehouse, as Scripture calls it. Uh, Imagine what you could do with assets that would allow you, without even thinking twice, to engage in domestic and overseas evangelism, send underprivileged children to schools, meet physical needs of everyone from those that live below the poverty line to the homeless. I mean, if you had, say, a church bank account set aside, oh, I don't know, let's pick a rough number, between 100 and 150 billion dollars. I'm talking basically larger than the budget of the entire state of California for a year. Imagine what you could do for ministry's sake. Now imagine if your church was so wealthy that not only could you have that amount of money set aside, but you would set it aside in a fund that you would deem your reserve fund or your rainy day fund. A <laughs> hundred and fifty billion dollar church rainy day fund. That seems to be almost of Noah level storm consequences for a rainy day fund that size. Well, if you say, Craig, that is ridiculous, that's exaggerated, that's far-fetched, that's absolutely impossible, then I would suggest that you're clearly not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Because recently it was revealed that, in fact, they had just that. Oh, not only a 100-plus billion dollar hedge fund, But a hedge fund that, as described by an agent from the IRS, is like Hotel California, meaning the money goes in but never comes back out. Portions of that fund and its existence 
got on the radar screen of the Security Exchange Commission and the IRS when an insider responsible for management of that so-called rainy day fund basically became a whistleblower and said, wow, not only is the money not being spent for any good, but where it is being spent is to do things like bail out a life insurance company, invest money in a for-profit mall, which based on IRS regulations for a 501c3 nonprofit religious organization, is completely illegal. Well, the Mormon Church, in fact, paid a penalty for all of this, although some might argue nowhere near what they should have. Let's get behind, though, not just the numbers, but the spirit behind the numbers and why any church organization would deem that they need to have a 100 to 150 dollar 50 billion dollar rainy day fund some insights now from a former member of the mormon church in fact author of the best-selling book under the banner of the mormon code formerly titled the mormon mirage published by zondervan pleased to have join us multiple award-winning author Dr. Latane Scott. Dr. Scott, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. My privilege. Thank you so much, Craig. Most people hear these numbers and think, well, this is just fantasy island time. I mean, wow, what, what a church could do with access to this kind of money. And yet the utter irony is in the church, even with some reluctance, has admitted, oh, yeah, just such a fund exists. Uh, they call it confidential. Others call it secret. Some refer to it as an emergency fund in case there's a downturn in the church's economics. But from your perspective as a former Mormon, does any of this at all come as a surprise to you? And when you hear about these enormous amounts of money just sitting aside in a hedge fund growing and doing nothing, what does it say to you? Um, first of all, um, I compare the Mormon church to people who grew up during the Depression. Because people who grew up during the Depression, um, that experience marked them to such an extent that they, um, at least the people I've known who grew up during the Depression, don't have the same view of money that other people do. And that actually happened to the Mormon church. In 1969, the Mormon church couldn't make its payroll, literally. And they were, uh, uh, they didn't have these enormous billions of dollars or whatever. And I really think that has informed the, um, the Mormon church thinking, the leadership of the Mormon church, because remember all of their leaders, the Mormon church, uh, the president of the Mormon church is in his 90s. Um, most of the leadership, the apostles, they call them of the Mormon Church, were the the uh, the head, <coughs> along with the first presidency and the and the so-called prophet of the Mormon Church. They were all alive when this happened. This is something that meant something to them. So when you have on national TV the representative of the Mormon Church literally hedging <laughs> hedge form, but he's literally hedging every time anyone asks him a question he never answers it directly and from one point of view you might say well you know um, a church should not have to report every penny and how they spend every penny to the IRS but the other side of the coin is that if you want a status of tax exempt so that the contributions that come in can be deducted off of people's taxes 
then you do have to follow certain rules. How the Mormon Church has gotten away with this, um, they've literally kind of flown under the radar for uh, decades until this young man who uh, worked for this uh, investment firm uh, owned by the Mormon Church, literally, as you said, through the whistle, um, in, in a, um, if a if a whistle can be going public, he made this, this claim. And to my knowledge, he's still a faithful Mormon. Uh, I didn't get the idea that he's left the Mormon Church, but his his faith in the leadership has been shaken, and his um, his view of how money that you know working class people put aside uh, once a once a week, once a month to pay to the Mormon Church. I think that's that's really uh, I think it's really shaken him. And understandably so. You're referring, of course, to David Nielsen, who had been hired away from an investment firm uh, managing large funds to go to work for an organization called Ensign Peak, which is basically the hedge fund of the Mormon Church. And, and, I, and as you describe it and as he delineates in the recent 60 Minutes interview, that over time, as he saw this number continue to grow and grow and grow and, and never any movement out, just movement in, and then on the few occasions when there was movement out, it was to do things like uh, during the economic downturn to bail out beneficial life insurance company, which is owned by the Mormon Church, or to invest in the construction of a mall to the tune of $1.4 billion, that's billion with a B, into the creation of a piece of property that is a for-profit organization. So I think there's not only the the dismay over the the mixing and blending of for-profit and non-profit and 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 clear in the mind at least of the IRS violations of 501c3 tax code, but then the notion of you look at so much hurting, so much pain all around you and think to yourself, wow, what we could do with that kind of money. And I, and I get what you're saying. I mean, a, any of us that have had parents or grandparents that survived the Great Depression know that there's a lack of trust in banks. And so it might not be unusual for a survivor of the Great Depression to have money in multiple different banks, multiple bank accounts, cash stashed away in the house, all of this because they know what it's like to go through difficult times. But I guess the question is, how much is too much? I mean, at what point do we do we step from we need to have an emergency fund? What happened to us in the late 1960s and not being able to make payroll was a terrible thing. We never want that to happen again. But, you know, there's a rainy day fund and then there's there's this. And I don't even know how to put a put a description on a church that's sitting on one hundred and fifty billion dollars. That's just effectively doing nothing. Well, you know, in a, in a Protestant church, the um, the money that is that uh, a, a non Mormon would pay to their church or would donate to their church, they would expect to be used for missions work, for maintenance of their facilities, that sort of thing. That with the idea that you would put a, put aside something in case the roof is leaks, you know, or if uh, uh, you know you have a um, uh, you know, like heaven forbid, an accident uh, out in your parking lot or something else, which liability insurance should cover. But <clears throat> there's a difference between having this, as you say, this enormous amount of money. But what most people don't realize is what 
we uh, we Christians would use that money for, like um, paying um, our ministers, um, supporting our missionaries, that sort of thing. It's not the case in the Mormon Church. Mormon bishops, the, the, the leaders of local congregations, um, they have full-time jobs of their own, they have professions, and they, they, um, they work without pay. The janitorial work in many Mormon buildings is done by members. Um, missionaries, when so those two guys come knock on your door, or those two young women that come by that knock on your door, they pay their own way. The church does not, the church doesn't send these missionaries out. And the reason I'm bringing this up, Craig, is because I think we as Christians have a sense of what we think the Lord's money ought to be spent on. But when I was a Mormon child, we had a, a bank that had three receptacles, uh, like a piggy bank. And one slot was for your tithing, one slot was for savings, like for college or something else, and one was for your mission. So every time one of these missionaries goes out on a mission, either he or his family uh, has the money for them uh, give that young man a certain amount of money every month and the um, and I hope this isn't too much local color but for instance Mormon missionaries when they run out of money they eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches until the you know the beginning of the month they're always glad to eat at a member's home they have a finite amount of money that the church says they can have you know you don't have a kid from a rich family and he has a bunch of money on his mission and a poor kid you have, um, they're all allowed a certain amount of money and they, uh, they have to make it last for those two years or a year and a half, however long it is that they're on their mission. So what you see visibly that the Mormon church does, builds temples, um, sends out missionaries and those sorts of things. The most visible arm of the Mormon church or the Mormon missionaries, and they are not paid for by the Mormon church. The Mormon church, um, if they're going to a foreign country, they, they have a, a training school for them. They do have administrative costs, but the missionaries themselves are self-funded, and most people don't realize that. So then it so, begins to, to beg the question, okay, for the amount of money that the Mormon church brings in, and we've all heard stories about ownership in, in things like hotels, even even uh, large radio groups that are supposedly either owned by the church outright or at least by uh, very high-profile members of the church that then use that as a feeder into the church, begs the question, well, then what exactly does the organization do with its money? And while some might say, hey, you know, that that's, that's up to them, that's their business, that's a private thing, but I, I have to wonder, you know, I, th- there ought to be, to some degree, a little bit of clarity or, or openness, uh, particularly when when a church is asking for huge sums of money and, and amassing levels like this, when we're talking about a rainy day fund that exceeds the annual budget of a state like California, which I'm sure spends more than any other state in the union, then you say, well... Where's the system of checks and balances and accountability? And does the, the, the rank and file membership know where the money is coming from and where it's going to? And it raises other questions, too, not just about, well, the influence of the church in relationship to the age of its elders and, um, 
you know that that notion that they they survived through the Great Depression and therefore being frugal is kind of in their DNA. But maybe it raises other questions about churches like the Mormon Church or or others like the Church of Scientology that seems to have a greater emphasis on the fundraising arm than anything else that they do. With us today is Dr. Latane Scott former member of the Mormon Church, author of a number of best-selling books, including Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The notion of tithing is certainly a scriptural one. We are encouraged to bring our tithes and offerings into the storehouse and then ultimately to be used for the sake of the gospel, the sake of ministry. And, you know, if we're honest about it, we understand that while the gospel is free, uh, the operation of a church to keep the lights on, the air conditioning running, to get the parking lot repaved, these are all expenses. I don't, I think, no one decries a ministry organization from spending money for its day-to-day programs and operation of a church or a ministry, whatever it might be. Um, I guess the question is perhaps here ultimately accountability and whether or not there's been a level of accountability for the average Mormon. And I have to wonder, from the perspective of, of tithes and offerings, are, are tithe, is tithing compulsory within the Mormon church? And do you think... Or how do you think the average Mormon responded when they found out that the church had amassed this size of a so-called rainy day fund? Well, let me address one one issue, uh, Craig, that I that you brought up, and and that is that the way God's money is supposed to be spent um, in the Bible, we're told that contributions are to be laid by in store, and they go for the poor. The, the money, remember the, the, the collections were made for the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering. Um, and for ministry, you know, um, Paul said uh, that people had the right to be paid for ministry. But Mormonism is Christianity upside down. It's where everybody, poor or rich, is compelled, and, and I'm going to explain what I mean by the word compelled, is compelled to donate to a top-heavy organization. It, it's Christianity upside down. So it should be the, the church is the body of Christ that's supposed to be serving needs. And instead, in, in Mormonism, it's the, the people, the body, serving the organization. Totally upside down. Um, you, you ask me about how they would feel. Um, I know many have been angered about it. I've I've read some responses uh, about that, but when I say that tithing is compulsory in the Mormon church, you can still be a Mormon, attend the services, be, uh, be you know, uh, take their communion, uh, you can uh, do any sort of thing like that, but if you want to go to the temple or serve in leadership in the Mormon church, you have to go once a year um, to something that used to be called tithing settlement, and I think it's called something like tithing accountability. And that's a one-on-one meeting or one-on-two meeting in which uh, each individual member goes in and meets with their bishop and the ward clerk, the guy that's in charge of the, uh, the monetary part. And you're asked specific questions, do you donate 10% of your income? 
And um, when I was a Mormon, we were also asked um, if, um, just as a kind of a side issue, if I donated um, the cost of two meals a month, which um, Mormons fast two meals, I mean, I, the money is supposed to be given to the poor, the cost of, of those two meals from which you abstained. And then there was also a building fund, and we um, we were contributed uh, to a building fund. Unlike many Protestant churches, there's not a, a offering plate passed. You put your money in an envelope and it's marked. So when you go in for this accountability thing, they already have records of what you've given because money came in envelopes with your name on it. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> And so when I say it's compulsory, no. But if your son's going to go on a mission, he has to be a tithe payer. Uh, if you're going to be married in a temple, you have to be a tithe payer. Um, uh, if you want to serve in any sort of leadership uh, position in the Mormon church, you have to be a tithe payer. And you have to prove it. <laughs> they don't take your word for it. <laughs> so they're they're keeping track. They know they know what's 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 coming in, and mm-hmm. and I would imagine the notion. I mean, you know, a lot of churches will have board meetings that are open to the general membership. Mm-hmm. There are discussions mm-hmm. about the building fund, whatever project the church might be working on, be it, you know, we're going to recarpet the church, add a new Christian education wing, whatever it might be. And, and most of that, most of that information for most churches, I think, is is generally um, public information. At least I think it ought to be. I think, you know, there, there should be no harm in asking, hey, I'm donating. I'd like to know where the money is going to. Uh, but I would imagine that is not at all a hallmark as to how the Mormon church operates in terms of that level of, of, of candor or disclosure, I mean, clearly not in the case here of this of this uh, $100 plus billion hedge fund uh, that was, when, when, when asked if it was secret, the answer from the church leader was, well, it's confidential. <laughs> mm-hmm, right, right. And, and you can imagine uh, the cognitive dissonance that goes on when you are supposed to be accountable for every penny you give in relationship to what you earn you personally earn and yet you cannot find out and when i was researching the mormon mirage you know the the two different editions that it went through there was no way that you could even find out seeing that worth of the mormon church and on in the 60 minutes uh, program um i believe one of the um uh, interviewers tried to ask this representative, and you can never get a straight answer out of them. But they do own they do own this uh, uh, insurance companies, radio stations, corporations, um, that, that enormous mall in, in downtown Salt Lake City, and many other things. And one of the things that David Nielsen found, um, at, and that the SEC actually fined. The, the Mormon Church for was that um, they had formed um, uh, shelf corporations to kind of hide some of the money. And that's when he kind of said, no, you know, the, like the Hotel California, he said it's all coming in and it's not going out. And he said um, that, and when you think about what they got fined, a few million dollars. Yeah, I think I think the total the total fine handed down by the Security Exchange Commission in harmony with the IRS is five million dollars. That that's what gets dropped on the floor. Exactly. That's that's, that's like a pocket change, you know, to the Mormon Church. I mean, it's not even a slap on the hand. What they didn't want was the publicity. 
you know, what's interesting about this, and when we come back after the break, I, I want to kind of turn a corner because it, you hear all of this and think, wow, you know, this the, the finances of the Mormon church are shrouded in in secrecy and, and, and uh, you know, a, a lack of, of candor. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you, if you think this is a degree of, of trying to conceal the truth from not only the general public um, at large, but the membership in specific, oh, this just scratches the surface. And Dr. Scott will speak to that point when we come back after the break. If you've just joined us with us today, a former member of the Mormon Church, an award-winning author, one of her best-selling books is called Under the Banner of the Mormon Code, and that, of course, published by Zondervan. We are talking about the recent whistleblower revelation that the Mormon Church had been hiding a so-called rainy day fund in excess of 100, we've heard numbers between 100 and 150 billion dollars. And, of course, this raises not only questions about why, what are they attempting to hide, why are they creating shell companies to try to keep all of this on the down low, but the, the bigger question beyond the so-called clandestine hedge fund is, are there other secrets the Mormon Church is hiding? And if so, why? We'll talk about that next as our conversation with best-selling author and former Mormon Dr. Latane Scott continues on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're um, talking about the recent revelations on a 60 Minutes report that a basic whistleblower had come forward who had been hired um, from a large financial management firm to come to work for an organization called Ensign Peak, something undoubtedly you've never heard of. That's because it's basically the private hedge fund of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a hedge fund that exceeds over one hundred billion dollars just sitting there doing nothing because you never know when you might need it. We're getting some insights from Dr. Latane Scott, former member of the Mormon Church, author of a number of best-selling books, including Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. And while this matter of degrees of secrecy related to huge dollars might come as a surprise to some folks, uh, students of the teachings of the Mormon Church might altogether not be surprised that the sense of secrecy is is more common than one might think. For example, let's let's maybe pull back the 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 curtain a little bit on how the Book of Mormon itself came into being, allegedly translated from a group of golden plates delivered by an angel named Moroni to Joseph Smith. And while the paper version of the Book of Mormon exists to this day, the original plates somehow magically, mysteriously disappeared and were allegedly taken back up to heaven by the angel Moroni. Seems quite convenient. Well, actually, um, I believe that many Mormons believe that they were reburied in the hill where they were uh, originally dug from. And many Mormon sources say that there's an entire storehouse of, of gold objects and other things uh, in under uh, the Hill Cumorah, which is actually one of the themes of, um, of my book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code, which is a, uh, a novel uh, that talks about what would happen if someone tried to bomb that, uh, that uh, site in order to reveal 
uh, what is or is not there. So kind of an interesting, interesting point there. <clears throat> but um, you, you made an interesting point uh, about information. We've learned in this digital age, this, this information age, that information can be more valuable than money. And the reason that information can be more valuable than money is that we, we saw with Bud Light. If the wrong kind of information gets out, sometimes you just don't recover from it. And maybe you recover eventually. And I think that's what's happening with the Mormon Church is that um, faithful Mormons who love the Mormon Church, like I did, I loved the Mormon Church. I went to BYU. I was so happy as a Mormon. I was so satisfied and at peace when I was a Mormon. And um, to, to find out that the things that you've been told all your life are not true, I compared to, um, uh, to getting up one morning and finding out that your husband has been cheating on you your entire marriage and you didn't know it. But for a Mormon, it's even worse. It's, it's finding out that not only are the stories that you were told about your scripture wrong, but the God that you worship doesn't exist. And that was, I mean, as Charles Spurgeon put it, there is no loss as great as the loss of one's God. And this has a cascade effect. And Craig, what, what you see, the reason why the Mormon Church is so unhappy with this kind of a, quote-unquote, revelation of their finances is it destroys their um, image as the underdog. You know, the dedicated missionaries going out and, you know, at the age of 20, giving up their time. Well, is this a missionary for sacrificing? It's not the church. The church, the Mormon church has only recently become involved in charitable things. When I was a Mormon, um, here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, each ward or, or congregation or stake, which is a group of, had its own charity project. You, uh, we had a woodlot. Others had apple orchards, whatever. And you were expected to work at this as an individual. You were expected to put in some time and effort. And uh, the money went for Mormon poor. The Mormon church was never known for charitable work outside their own numbers, ever. Until recently, and now it, I mean, the spotlight's been turned on them, and they have began doing that, but that's not part of the Mormon church's history. And um, secrecy with money, uh, Joseph Smith actually founded a bank that failed. He actually printed money that was worthless. Uh, and so when Mormons start putting all these things together, wait a minute. You know, this is part of our history, is this secrecy and this duplicity about money. It should make them uncomfortable, and it does make them uncomfortable. And I pray that God helps that feeling of discomfort to lead them to ask the important theological questions. Who is the Mormon God? Who is the Mormon Jesus Christ? We're using the same names, are they the same people? But that's I see all of these things that come up like this, Craig, as entrances that the Lord can use to get people's attention to disconnect them enough from their love of Mormonism 
to actually start looking at what it is we're going to need. And it has for the the average Mormon. This this has to be very unnerving. I, I mean, not only in terms of how individuals may feel about amassing this amount of money in a so-called rainy day fund, and then and then beginning to see sort of cracks in the facade when Mormon leadership doesn't quite give straightforward answers. And I, and I suspect, mm-hmm. and maybe you can shed some light on this. I mean, one of the hallmarks of false teaching is there are certain questions that are just not asked. Mm-hmm. You, you shouldn't probe too deep. Don't go in that direction, things of that sort, because if you do, you might uncover an answer uh, that you're very unhappy with. Now, in my mind, one of the hallmarks of, of the Christian faith is that there are no limits, uh, that you're encouraged to probe and to question and to seek and, uh, you know, to, to every degree in Old and New Testament uh, to, to peel back every layer and that at the end of the day, the 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 things like archaeology and, and history and so many extra biblical documentations will help support what you read within Scripture in addition to the notion that, that Scripture helps reveal itself, Scripture, um, you know, with, within itself. But that's not the case with Mormonism. And I'm, and I'm curious, are there degrees to which there is that sense of, of a continued sort of shroud of secrecy that certain questions are not to be raised, such as, well, whatever became of the plates, or, or what about the fact that there seems to be multiple editions of the Book of Mormon down through the years and Pearl of Great Price and the other holy books within Mormonism that, that seem to have gone through um, changes that are not changes such as, well, we've gone from, uh, you know, the, the, the perhaps less clear um, King James version of Scripture, for example, to a, a clearer version for younger people that might feel more comfortable with it. But those are not the kinds of changes to which I refer. I mean, there there are marked changes within Scripture that would say to me it's in an effort or an attempt to try to cover something up. Am I right? Well, not only that, Craig, I think one of the questions that may be in the mind of your listeners are is, is the Mormon Church a cult? Because you're talking about cultic characteristics. And what makes the church a cult? In other words, what's the difference between a, a verifiable and uh, authentic biblical church? No matter how many how many ways our churches differ, you know, I go into Methodist churches and Baptist churches and, and evangelical free churches and other churches and speak, and we all agree on the main things that the Mormon Church doesn't. And I have for your readers, excuse me, for your listeners, a free resource called What's a Cult? And it's at my name, Latane, L-A-T-A-Y-N-E dot com slash cult, C-U-L-T-S, Latane dot com, cult. And it is one of the characteristics of a cult is that it is secretive, its leadership is secretive about the way it operates. Now, does that necessarily make a church a pseudo-Christian cult? I don't think so. I'm, I mean, I've written several books on cults. And um, although we, we don't like and we don't agree with and we feel offended by and it's illegal what the Mormon church is doing, um, that, that's between them and the government and their members. But what we are concerned about, Craig, is whether or not they're preaching another gospel. 
and they're financing it. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that really gets down to the, the core issue that ought to be on the mind of each of our listeners, and, and that is, you know, at the end of the day, it might be troubling, disturbing, uh, something that we certainly wouldn't uh, wouldn't feel comfortable with if our own church was behaving in that fashion in terms of the economics of it all. But the real ultimate question is, are they teaching another gospel are there parallels is, is the book of mormon just another this the, the the mormon church's version of of the bible but at the end of the day their belief about who god is jesus is heaven hell etc etc is it all identical we're going to come to that question coming up next dr latane scott with us today if you'd like to take advantage of that resource that she just mentioned go to her website latane l-a-t-a-y-n-e latane.com forward slash cults that latane dot com forward slash cults so time out back with more as lifeline continues and now back to lifeline with craig roberts in the home stretch of this segment with dr latane scott former member of the mormon church author of the best-selling under the banner of the mormon code and again i'll mention if you want to take advantage of some resources available without cost or obligation check out her website at latane.com that's l-a-t-a-y-n-e.com forward slash cults. Uh, I suspect this is going to be a conversation for another day because this will take a good solid hour or more. So kind of wet our whistle here, if you would, tonight, Dr. Scott, in terms of drawing the lines between the differences of traditional evangelical, biblical-based Christianity versus Mormonism. Do we consider, from a biblical viewpoint, Mormonism is just another denomination like the Presbyterians or the Methodists, whomever, or do they indeed, the Mormons, preach a different gospel? They do indeed, and I'm not saying that there aren't individual Mormons who don't understand their own doctrine well enough to uh, to believe it and to uh, the Jesus Christ that they worship is the Jesus Christ of the Bible. But if you accept what Mormon doctrine says, let's just take God the Father, just let's narrow it down very specifically, because Jesus said, life eternal is to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. If you need to know God, then I could ask you, Craig, do you believe that God, the Father, was once a human being who lived on another planet? Yeah, that would be a definite no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, do you believe that um, that the incarnation of Jesus Christ involved the agency of God the Father and not the Holy Spirit? I'm sorry, you cut out a little bit. There. Say, repeat that again, please. Do you believe that the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his 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 coming to earth and dwelling uh, coming to into the womb of Mary that that came about through the activity of God the Father or of the Holy the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit you the Holy Spirit do you believe God was once a man and now maintains his human body and uh, is a person of a personage of flesh and bones absolutely not although Christ at one time was but God the Father, we're talking... No, we're just God the Father, no. No, not. I've given you just three basic questions which are so basic 
to Christian doctrine, so basic to the Bible, so essential to Christian doctrine that Mormons don't believe. But I'll tell you something that will really blow your socks off, <laughs> Craig. That doctrine of God is taught in the Book of Mormon. The Christian doctrine is taught in the Book of Mormon. In fact, almost all doctrinal things taught in the Book of Mormon are Christian. Not, not the narrative about the coming to the Americas or that sort of thing, but the doctrines. And that's because more, the Mormon religion has morphed. It has changed. As it was originally presented in the, in the Book of Mormon, there was no idea of uh, God having been a man. There was no idea that God once had a body. None of that was in the Book of Mormon. Now, Joseph Smith said that he met two separate beings, two bodily beings in a grove who spoke to him. So you can say that that, that was there from the, from the beginning of Mormon doctrine, but you'd be wrong because that account never was, was um, published or uh, known until after the Book of Mormon came out. I, I'm curious, given the existence of canon scripture predating the existence of the Book of Mormon by decades, uh, decades more than that, centuries, millennia, how, how does the Mormon church justify these significant differences when we look at what we consider to be canonical scripture versus the more modern, quote-unquote, writings of Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, etc., etc., when, when, when there are aspects of the two that are clearly in direct opposition. I mean, this, this is not just another revelation, as I've often heard it referred to of, as this is a differing, a contrarian revelation. Uh, well, the way you do that is you hold the Bible up to suspicion, not those things. And the Mormon Church has 12 articles of faith. You can look them up on uh, LDS.org. And one of those articles of faith is we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly. Now, you and I would say that's true. Craig, you and I would say we don't accept that translation, the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, do we? Do we? You and I would agree that it has to be a committee translated Bible uh, for us to accept it as canonical, or it has to be translated from the original Greek and the original Hebrew and, and uh, Aramaic. But Mormons have their own doctrine as the standard. And they judge the Bible by that. So wherever the, the Bible conflicts with Mormon doctrine, it is the Bible that is at fault. Um, if we have time, do we have time for just one example of that? Please, please. Mormon Church had taught when I was at BYU in a religion class that, um, that Moses never died. Because he appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah, who never died, so therefore Joseph never died. What does the Bible say at the end of the book of Deuteronomy? That Moses died and God buried him. So it, I was told that's a place where the Bible was mistranslated or, or is an error because we know that he was a, what they called a translated being, and uh, he must have gone to heaven without dying. Wow. 
so it it's it's really picking and choosing and using Mormon scripture as the ultimate harbinger of what is accepted as truth and when there is a conflict between what is shown in in revealed scripture and canonical scripture and Mormon teaching they dismiss the canonical scripture and say that's an error we've got the real truth Absolutely. Wow. You know, it's a fascinating revelation to look into the teachings of the the Mormon church and, and to begin to realize that while perhaps potentially on the surface, people oftentimes make the mistake that it's just, a, uh, you know, an offshoot of Christendom or another revelation of Jesus Christ. No, this, 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 is, this is completely out of the ballpark. And um, this study, as we say, we're going to need to get into a little bit more in depth when we have more time. I do want to thank Dr. Latane Scott for being with us tonight. And uh, again, I want to encourage you to take advantage of some of the resources that she's making available to listeners tonight by going to her website, Latane, L-A-T-A-Y-N-E dot com, Latane dot com forward slash cults. The book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code, published by Vondervin and available through the usual Suspects, including Amazon.com. Our thanks to former member of the Mormon Church and best-selling author, Dr. Latane Scott, for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Six o'clock from KFAX.